So this morning, we're going to continue in our series called This Is Us, and we're going to be talking through strategic multiplication. But I want to, I want to remind us that last week we had the opportunity to hear and witness the amazing conversion of, from Saul to Paul. And Aaron did an amazing job of unpacking that for us. If you remember, if you remember what um, the Lord told Ananias in Acts 9, he said, I'm going to be honest and show Saul, who would become Paul, just how much he's going to need to suffer in order to carry my namesake to the rest of the world. And if I'm honest, like I, I heard that and I thought about that and I realized as you walk through Scripture, all that Paul did suffer but he was open to that suffering. He was open to that, that development process. We, we understand. We saw Gamaliel develop him. And he had to go through rigor and, and a lot of pain and struggle in order to be developed. But that didn't stop. When he became to Jesus, he had to go through rigor, pain, and years of suffering in order just to become like Christ. How many of you have recognized that sometimes pain is our greatest teacher? And how many of you have recognized that in order to grow, James said it like this, we have to go through trial in order to grow because he's perfecting us. We weren't born into a perfect world. It was intended for us, but we were born into a broken world. In order to walk like Christ, sometimes we've got to allow ourselves to be honest with ourselves and allow God to be honest with us, and that is we don't know everything. I remember when I knew everything. I remember that, and then I hit my 20s. You know, and then when I was 30, my world vastly changed because I recognized just how much I wasn't prepared for all that I was going through. And thankfully, the Lord put in my life people who had been through their 20s and had been through their 30s. And they, they surpassed those years with flying colors. And, and because they were in my life, they were able to come alongside me and be honest about the fact that I didn't know everything. And when I looked at them, I realized, I don't know what I'm doing. I need your help. I gave them license to speak into my life and give me some wisdom that could be imparted because they had been through where I was. And I wanted to get where they were. You know what I had to realize to to do that? You know what I realized to to recognize that if I'm going to get to 60 and be as successful as these people who I've given license to speak into my life, I have to let them be honest with me. And I also have to be honest with myself. And that is this, that if I'm only listening to people in my life who are exactly where I am, let me say that a little different. If I'm only listening to those in life who are as dumb as I am, I'm not going to get very far. I'm not going to grow. So I want to say that uh, it said that Saul had to suffer quite a bit for the Lord to become Paul. And that cannot be overstated. Saul, uh, by the time that he was in, in Acts 14, to become an apostle of the kingdom, to bring the kingdom to earth, faced repeated calamity. His discipleship of Jesus meant from shipwreck to stoning, from, from imprisonment to martyrdom. In fact, in Acts 14, it says that he had gone into a couple cities and he had given away the gospel in uh, Iconium and in Antioch. And he caught word that the Jews were catching up to him and they wanted to kill him for what he was teaching. So he ran away to Lystra. And when he was in Lystra, now you need to understand, such a powerful ministry that people were praying that Saul would simply walk past them and the shadow that he cast would fall on them in hopes that he, they'd be healed. 
Not only was he teaching Jesus, he was performing miraculous things. And in Lystra, it became so pronounced that the people there started to worship he and Barnabas as if they were gods. His response to this was this. People, why are you doing these things? Why we are people just as you, just like you. We are proclaiming the good news to you that you can turn from these worthless things unto the living God who alone made the heavens, made the earth, the sea, and everything in them. His humility, his zeal, his power, his favor with the message of the gospel, even his willingness to endure certain and increasing persecution was advancing the gospel at such a rampant rate that people noticed and people wanted to kill him. People who wanted to buy in believed and it was expanding the gospel and the kingdom beyond. But people who were opposed wanted to kill him. In fact, in Acts 14, he was left for dead. The people, he had been stoned by those who had caught up to him from Antioch and Iconium. And the people there who witnessed his stoning in the city dragged him outside the city and left him because they thought that he was going to die. How many of you here have suffered a little bit for the gospel so far in life? Let me say it a little bit differently. How many of you have realized that life sometimes is just sad? And it's difficult and it hurts. And maybe you're here and you've brought with you this morning a whole set of circumstances that seem bleak. And you might be asking yourself, where is God in all of this? I don't have an answer for what I'm being forced to go through right here. Well, here's what I want to encourage you. You're not alone because you're in a broken world just like the rest of us. And sometimes sadness is a part of life. Sometimes trial is a part of life. And James said we're to go through trial and to consider it joy because God is trying to perfect us. And you can only accept that when you accept the inner strength that comes by the indwelling of the Spirit when we believe on Christ. That's what got Paul through and that's what will get us through. Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Meaning, I'm never going to walk away from you. I'm never going to leave you alone. And I'm never going to break a promise to you. So, the supernatural results that were being yielded by Paul's ministry was coming from that inner strength. And he was reproducing himself in others. That, reprodu that reproduction of himself is what we want to talk about today. Strategic multiplication. Paul learned to reproduce himself in such a successful way that his ministry at times was more successful when he wasn't involved. He was behind bars and couldn't get out. He was imprisoned. But the people that he'd invested in were so successful in taking the, the values and the biblical truth of the gospel that had been placed within them from him that they could continue and go. I want to thank you because... This past week, the, the, the pastors of the church, we got to go away because of your generosity and your, your helping invest in us. We went to a conference this week where we learned about the discipleship pathway and importance of being honest with each other. And how many of you know that growth requires honesty? I had to be honest with myself and I had to examine where I'd been invested in to get where I am today. And I hope this morning that we'll allow ourselves to be honest with ourselves as well. Because we as a church believe in multiplying ourselves in various ways to ensure the mission of sharing the gospel extending beyond ourselves. We believe in strategic multiplication. Paul had deliberate missionary journeys that believed the same. They led to the multiplying of his faith, the multiplying of his skills, and establishing leaders so much so that disciples that came after him were almost even more effective than him. 
We value working ourselves out of a job. How many of you have heard that before? We value working ourselves out of a job. If you are going to be a disciple who makes disciples, you need to continually strive to work yourself out of a job. In Matthew 28, we have the Great Commission. And there's no one here who's been in church long enough that has heard these words and not thought that you were responsible to do it. It says this, that Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to heaven and earth unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching to observe everything that I have taught you. He goes a step further in Ephesians 4 and he says that we are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son growing into maturity with a stature that's measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves, blown around in every wind of the teaching that is evident by human cunning and cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love... Let us grow in every way unto him who is the head, Christ. Paul took this call very seriously as he equipped others. He simultaneously offended the Jews as he did it, those he'd once led. In Thessalonica, the following happened after teaching Jesus in the synagogues and converting many to Christ. They came looking for him. They sought to end him, to end his ministry. And they said to him, listen to this very important quote that they've said of him in Acts 17. But the Jews became jealous and they brought together some wicked men who were from the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city, attacking Jason's house. They searched for them to bring them out of, into public ministry, uh, public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and the brothers out of the city with them, shouting, saying, These men who have turned the world upside down have now come here, speaking of Paul and Silas. And Jason has welcomed them, they are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, the only reason I want to point these two kind of uh, contrasting worldviews out is this. We are either allowing the world to shape us and the culture and the message they're in to invest in who we are, or we're allowing the Bible to. You see, these men... Paul, Silas, Barnabas were turning the world upside down. And how many of us want to have that kind of testimony spoken of us because of the power of the gospel has changed us? Amen? How many of you would like to have that kind of effect on the rest of the world around you? Then you have to constantly decide to allow the biblical truth of, of the message of the gospel to change you, be honest about where you are and where you are not, and allow it to change in such a way that you have an effect. But if we just simply want to play status quo, continue to play uh, games at the foot of the cross and allow the culture to widely influence us more so than the message of the gospel, but when we come to church, put on a smiley face and act the part, we are not growing. Amen? I've met too many people who are well advanced in their years who are still little children. And while they have the experience of life experience that has gotten them into their 60s, their 70s, when it comes to the spiritual truth, my grandmother falls into this category. I love her. But she is nothing more than a child spiritually. And it's because she's never allowed herself to be honest with herself and allow the power of the gospel to truly change her. Today, I want to... 
I want to say, we have to allow ourselves to let the power of the gospel change us, and we have to be proximate to that gospel, and we have to allow people who are successful in said gospel to be proximate with us and to pour into us. Paul did this with two people that I want to mention today because they're so powerful. In fact, as I was teaching, as I was talking through this last week, uh, just a, a random conversation with Carolloy. We were sitting there, and she said, you know, I love that story about Aquila and Priscilla. And I thought, you know what? I love that story. And that led to today's passage. So we're going to be in Acts 18. And I just want to to share with you the power of what God did in two very ordinary people. Chapter 18 says this. After this, he left Athens, meaning Paul, and went to Corinth. When he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them, and since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked. Verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every day, or, sorry, every Sabbath, and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Now, what you need to understand is this. Aquila was forced by exile out of Italy because he was Jewish. He was forced to Corinth. Corinth was a very important city. It was a port city. And at this time, it was very transient. It was a, it was a marketplace for cultures, both Jew and Greek alike. It was extremely important to the culture. It also happened to be the center of worship to Aphrodite, the goddess. And so all of, uh, all of the world kind of in its worship to Aphrodite flowed out of this epicenter. And you need to understand just how vile it actually was. Uh, in fact, that vileness, that, uh, that height of hedonism led to, uh, led to the tone by which Paul wrote First and Second Corinthians. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, you've probably been to a wedding before and you've heard 1 Corinthians 13, 4 quoted, which is, love is patient, love is kind. It isn't self-seeking. It isn't boastful. It doesn't seek its own way. The biblical definition of divine love under God. He's writing this because they had been trained that love meant that, uh, that you had to have this tainted and perverse picture of it. Let me explain. There were priestesses to the church of Aphrodite. And those priestesses, on a ritualistic and nightly basis, would make their way into the city to prostitute themselves to men of the city, passers-by and the commoner. They would prostitute themselves as of worship unto their goddess. And so when I, when I say that Corinth played an important role, but you also need to understand its reputation was that of Sin City. It was a place that was so vile, so hedonistic. It was the height of self-indulgence. It's like our modern-day Las Vegas, but even more vile. So much so that its reputation went to the rest of the world and the rest of the world would look at each other and when someone made a super selfish decision, something so immoral, they would tagline, they'd be like, oh man, that was pretty Corinthian of you. That's how bad this reputation was. And it's often referenced as the New Testament problem church because of its its culture and its proximity to its parishioners. So this is the place where Aquila and Priscilla, who were known tent makers, would come into the city and they would find an open air market and they would, they would rent space. Paul comes in, a tent maker by trade himself, meets them, finds them, and it says they connected. It says that not only did he work with them, he lived with them. They welcomed him into their home and they stayed there. He stayed there for, we're about to read, 18 months. Now I want to read on and get to it. It says now, verse 5, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. 
When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, Your blood is on your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with all in the household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. And then the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Do not be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in this city. He stayed there for a year and a half teaching the word of God amongst them. So let me, let me show you what this actually looks like, okay? We as a church value multiplying ourselves in various ways to ensure the mission of sharing the gospel extends beyond ourselves. What we just read is that. Okay, so we know from last week that you have Ananias, you have Barnabas, and you have the apostles have all invested into Paul in his conversion, Saul of Tarsus. And from there, we see Saul, who became Paul, invest in Timothy, Silas, TJ, Titius Justice, we'll just say TJ, and Crispus. And in the center, you have two very important people that he worked with, lived with, and that was Aquila and Priscilla. Okay, now, you need to understand, they're living together. They're working together, they're living together. It says that he would go into TJ's house and he would teach for hours upon hours a day. So you have to imagine that early in the morning they would gather in the marketplace and work, and then they would go to TJ's house and spend the better part of the day teaching well into the night. And then you have to seemingly imagine that Paul would go home with Aquila and Priscilla and he would talk with them well into the evening about the power, the ministry, and the importance of, of what Jesus' kingdom meant and how to advance it. Now, we know nothing more about Aquila and Priscilla than the fact that they were tent makers. These are normal people, okay? There was an investment being made into them, but they are, they are nothing more than commoners like you and I. They're not like people who are going to go on and, like Paul, be said that they turned the world upside down. We don't know of their ministry other than what we're reading here today. So Aquila and Priscilla are invested in by Paul for hours upon hours upon hours over the course of 18 months. Now, if you remember in 1 Corinthians, if you read the letter in 1 and 2 Corinthians, Paul writes back to Corinth while he's imprisoned. He writes back and he says, hey, I'm hearing some things. And Paul always wrote his epistles. He wrote back to letters, oh, letters to churches that he had started. He wrote back to encourage them, to correct them, to lovingly keep them moving forward. One of the things he wrote was, I'm hearing that some of you say, I follow Paul. I'm hearing that some of you say, I follow Apollos. Some of you say, even Cephas. And Paul's response to that was this. He said, look, we're nothing more than busboys. The word literally translates busboys. We are just servants of the kingdom. There's nothing about us that is poor. We are just like you, but we all play a specific role. I had to plant, Apollos had to water, but God brought the increase. We are all playing a role. And so 
Aquila and Priscilla played, that's not anatomy and physiology, that's Aquila and Priscilla, were invested in by Paul. Okay? Intentionally and deeply. Okay? Let me, let me just read on just a little bit further. He was, actually, let me go ahead and give you the point that I would like to make right here. They were equipped with the gospel. They were poured into and they were equipped with the very gospel of Jesus. We are equipped with the fullness of the gospel and we see our lives changed by said gospel into fully submitted and devoted followers of Jesus when we allow ourselves access to it and honesty with it. This happened in Paul's life and then he was able to invest in them. He didn't have all the picture, though he was raised in, the, in Judaism and he made it to the heights of Judaism. We looked at that last week. But he was trained with these core values that we hold as a church. He learned about what it meant to be Bible-centered. He experienced life change. He, he learned what it was like to treat all as insiders, both Jew and Greek alike. He learned what it meant to serve together. He also learned about plurality and leadership and strategic multiplication, which is what we're talking about here. And it becomes very evident in this story. But Aquila and Priscilla gave him license to do that. They welcomed him as a mentor. And I have to ask, how many of you are being mentored? How many of you are allowing someone older to invest into your life today? And I got to ask this question as well. How many of you recognize that you're being influenced, either biblically or culturally? Whether you're cognizant of it or not, you're being led, and you're also leading others. How many of you are parents? You're leading whether you recognize it or not. And the thing that you're putting into someone else is the very thing that's being put into you. And so we have to recognize the responsibility we have as disciples to make disciples, and it's a natural process. But we live in a broken world with a lot of stuff, with a lot of Corinthian in us, a lot of self-indulgence that has to be pushed away. If we are not careful, we'll take the very thing that is in us, that self-indulgence, and we'll pass it along to generation after generation after generation, i.e., welcome to the world. Look around you. How many of you would say we're, the, we're at the height of the moral true north? No, that wouldn't be said of anyone. And so we have to recognize the power and responsibility we have. So Paul allows Aquila and Priscilla to be changed and equipped by the gospel. And if you notice, they were trained in community. We believe that we are trained best in community with others. You see, Aquila and Priscilla came alongside these others and were trained in the word uh, hour after hour in Titia Justice House. And then Paul took Aquila and Priscilla and he took them aside. And I'm going to read to you as to why. A moment ago I said the word name Apollos. You might go, where did Apollos come to this? He hasn't been mentioned yet. Well, he's coming up. Here it is. In verse 18 of Acts 18. After staying for some time, Paul said farewell to the brothers and sisters and sailed away to Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. He shaved his head at Centuria because of a vow that he had taken. And when they reached Ephesus, he left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and debated with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, that is Aquila and Priscilla, he declined, but said farewell and added, I'll come back to you again if God wills. Then he set sail for Ephesus. 
Upon landing at Caesarea, he went up from Jerusalem and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he set out traveling from one place after another in the region of uh, Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So what has happened is he set out from Corinth and he took Aquila and Priscilla with him and he took them to Ephesus. He stayed for a moment and he took off. He continued and he left them there. Verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he only knew up to John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And after Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. When he wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brothers and sisters wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And after he arrived, he was a great help to them, both by the grace of those who'd been delivered. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So Aquila and Priscilla are left in Ephesus by themselves to invest invest in Apollos. And it says that Apollos, who was an eloquent speaker, familiar in all the scriptures, welcomed them to do so because he had a part of the gospel but not the fullness of the gospel. They had the fullness of the gospel because of Paul's investment in them. And they not seeking a platform, not owning a platform, not becoming these dynamic pastors who would go on and rock the world, not hearing of themselves that they were the people who turned the world upside down. They were normal, like you and I, tent makers, just menial people. And they took a gifted, someone who eventually would have a platform who would become extremely important to the New Testament church, Apollos, and they saw in him a gift that they themselves didn't recognize in themselves, and they invested in it. They said, if this guy who is so eloquent and can give away the Scriptures so accurately doesn't have the fullness of the gospel, then he does not have the full story. We need to give that to him. So they did. And the thing that's interesting about their investment in Apollos is this. Paul said... Some say you follow me. Some say you follow Apollos. Here's the thing. Paul was in Corinth 18 months. That's it. Apollos, by the time that Paul had written that, had been the pastor long-term there for years. So you, you've got to recognize when he says that, hey, we all played a part, I was representative of dropping the gospel and then I left. But Apollos would be the one to walk with you long-term. And so what was he doing with Aquila and Priscilla when he takes them with him on a journey and he takes them to Ephesus and then he drops them and leaves them by themselves to train someone else? They were just there. They didn't even know the purpose for which they were there other than to advance the gospel. And when they hear the gospel coming forth but not in fullness from Apollos, he said, that's our guy. We're to train him. So they come alongside him. He lets them and he invests in them. Why were they there? They were being empowered to lead. Hear me? They were being empowered to lead. They had been equipped with the gospel. They were trained in community, but they were being empowered to lead. And here's the thing. How many of you recognize that Paul leaving them there in Ephesus could have been a disaster recipe? It could have been a recipe for disaster. They could have wildly failed. 
How many of us have heard again that pain is sometimes the greatest teacher? We don't, we don't help people when we don't create space for others to fail in life. Sometimes failure and the pain that comes with it can become our greatest teacher. When we're safeguarding everything, you have an entire generation of snowflakes. Amen? Amen. When we safeguard everything and we give away ribbons that are solely participation and everyone gets one, we're not creating space for people to learn that failure is a part of life. And how you train someone to fail also gives them license to learn how to get up. How many of you in life have failed? And you're grateful for your failure because it taught you. Paul empowered Aquila and Priscilla to fail. But he trusted the thing that he'd invested in them, what he put in them, would succeed beyond their failures, beyond their human limitations. So, here's, I want to, I want to kind of, you guys ready? We're going to redraw this. Okay? We're going to get a little nuts, a little weird. Let's redraw it. Here it goes. You've got an investment into Paul. Okay? And that came by Ananias, we heard last week, Barnabas, and the apostles. That's actually how you write those terms. If you couldn't figure out, that's accurate spelling. <laughs> so they invest in Paul. Paul then invests in a lot of people. We're going to focus on A and P, Aquila and Priscilla, okay? Who then simultaneously, when once they are given the freedom to fail, invest in Apollos, who will become the pastor of what is considered the troubled church of the New Testament. Now, he is trained in Ephesus, which is the pinnacle church in all the New Testament. So you could say that Paul's ministry in the New Testament was bookended by the, the troubled church and the most, like Ephesus was like the New York of our day. So Las Vegas to New York, Paul had had success with the troubled church to the successful church. Because watch this, Apollos then comes back, becomes the pastor of the place where Aquila and Priscilla were trained in Corinth. They trained him in Ephesus where Timothy, who's another understudy of Paul, will become the pastor and he'll write things like, do not let anyone forsake your youth. Don't let anyone speak down to your youth, but go in because you're going to be against a lot of people who are well-read and well-studied, but they're teaching falsely. You've got to be able to challenge them. And so Paul has an investment that continues. And it continues, and it continues. Here's the question I have for you. Who is investing in you? And whom are you investing in? We are all being influenced, and we are all influencing. The question is, who's influencing you, and who, in fact, are you influencing? Because we as a people believe that we are doing whatever it takes to develop disciples of Jesus Christ who will gather 
grow, and go. This is our mission statement. This is why we as a church exist. Doing whatever it takes. Doing whatever it takes requires being honest. Yesterday I had the opportunity to learn about my own limitations. My wife came home and said, hey, why don't we take a bike ride? Why don't all of us take a bike ride as a family? It's a beautiful day. You guys saw how beautiful it was yesterday. Let's take a bike ride. And I was thinking, that sounds like a great idea. A bike is awesome. I have not been on a bike in years. But let's go on a bike ride. And let's bike from East Nashville, Shelby Bottoms, to Nadine's in Hermitage. Let's do that. And so I'm thinking, this is great. That'll be awesome. This will be a great... I'll get to see part of the city I've never seen. Let's do it. We got to Nadine's, and somewhere between Shelby Bottoms and Nadine's, my knees exploded. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm driving, I'm riding back from Nadine's to Shelby Bottoms, and some dudes who are whizzing by like bikers got the full uniform, handing my my knees, said, here you go. I found these down the, on the trail back there. Like, I found out really harshly and quite quickly just how 40 I am. And that I am out of practice. It hurt. It still hurts. I had one of my saddest days in my life. How many of you recognize sadness as a part of life? I was driving home crying. I drove here crying. My knees had seized up by the time I got here. I am still hurting because I am out of practice. And I can't do what I once did. My kids are whizzing along, man, having a great time. I'm dropping back going, please don't let me die out here. God, like they need to have a father. Don't let them grow up fatherless because I'm going to die. I am 40. And that was a painful reality and a time for life to just be honest with me. As we close, are you evaluating whether, whether you're allowing yourself and life in and of itself to be honest with you? Who are you allowing to speak into you to just be honest with you? To tell you you don't know everything. And I want to give you some tools. I want to give you the fullness of the gospel so you can give it away to someone else. But if, if, all, if all of the people in your life who come up against is a stiff arm, listen, you're not growing. If all that they come up against when they meet you is, is, a, is a fake smile because it's church time and the smile comes on and you have to be on. No one can know about the hardship and the circumstance and the sadness and the, the struggle that you are presently in. If that is all that is happening because you've not allowed anyone license to speak honestly with you because you believe the lie that culture says you have to be on 100% all the time. Listen, you are not growing and you're going to turn into one of the 60, 70 year olds who are just children. Spiritually, God has called for us to make disciples. Thus, we have to be honest as disciples. We don't know everything. This morning, we have an opportunity to repent, whether it be at this altar or at the Lord's table. God loved us enough to give himself so we could be honest with ourselves in a broken world that we don't have 
all the answers. And he doesn't expect us to. He wants to give us the truth. We don't determine our own truth. He gives us the truth. Are we willing this morning, whether with a prayer partner, maybe an elder, maybe someone here who is where you want to be, would you give them license to be honest? It may be in the very seat you're sitting where you are, and it may be with the person next to you. You may have walked in having really broken relationship with them, and you need to hold their hand or come alongside them and say, I'm sorry, please, speaking to me, I don't know everything. Thank you for loving me enough to be honest. Father, this morning as we come, may we trust you enough to be loved by you enough to allow you to be honest with us. God, we don't have everything together. God, we don't, in all humility, know everything. God, I thank you for Jesus and the fact that in Jesus, we have every opportunity to grow up and to grow out of ourselves, to become perfect, to become mature adults who live like you and God love like you. But there's some things within us, this self-indulgent tendency, this hedonistic tendency, this fleshly tendency that needs to be put aside and shed in order for that to happen. So this morning, will you, will you just come? We invite your spirit to come and be our teacher. We invite you to come and to reveal to us the places where, where we need to grow. The places where we are not as honest as we should be. The places where maybe we're lying to others and we're lying to ourselves. God, give us a boldness to confess and God, to repent of the places that keep you at bay. Father, don't find a stiff arm in this room today. May you find your people willing and honest to repent, whether at this altar, at your table, or with our neighbor. In Jesus' name.